This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, I'm here today with Steve Howell, who was Deputy Director of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour uh, campaign during the general election of 2017. And Steve, who uh, founded a public relations company called Freshwater in Cardiff, has written what I found a very compelling book about the election campaign last year, which is called Game Changer. And I thought Steve... Before we actually talk about uh, the contents of the book itself, perhaps you could give us a little background about yourself, where you're from, what your political roots are, that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, well, it goes back a long way, and I'll try not to get too bogged down in any detail of it, but I I was active as a teenager in the Labour Party and a school friend of Peter Mandelson's. And uh, we set up a branch of the Young Socialists. um, And then we sort of went different ways politically. Uh, Well, we went the same way, actually, for for a while, which was into the Young Communist League. Uh, And um, we both uh, were in that. And then uh, he went into the Labour Party. And it was was quite a bit later that I went back into the Labour Party. Um, But I've been a member now for about uh, well over 25 years anyway. And... I was very active in the 1980s in the anti-apartheid movement. I had a full-time job uh, working for local authorities against apartheid. And then uh, when Mandela was released, I found myself out of work, uh, but in a very happy way, obviously. Um, And I sort of managed to find my way into journalism. And I worked um, in Sheffield. I was up in Sheffield by this stage. I was brought up in London. and I uh, worked as a journalist up there for a while and then I came down to South Wales because my wife is from Bridgend and we, uh, we had three kids by this stage and so we sort of settled here in the early 90s and I was working by then for the South Wales Argus and then I went to BBC Wales where I worked for Radio Wales and then for a while on Wales Today and then I uh, in the late 90s set up the business um, not intending to have a big plan just do some sort of consultancy work and it sort of went one thing led to another Uh, we got involved with Celtic Man and did a lot of work for them in the early days and uh, the Ryder Cup and then we branched out and uh, opened offices outside Wales and we've now got a very large office in London with about 20 staff and about 30 or so in Cardiff and uh, and I was sort of chugging along nicely uh, towards the end of you know nearly 20 years running the business when an old friend of mine who I knew from my more sort of frontline political days in the 1980s um, Seamus Milne gave me a call and said you know would you be interested in coming to work for Jeremy? But Seamus of course um, is a Guardian journalist who was on secondment to Jeremy Corbyn as the um, effective head of uh, media for him. That's right yeah he, he, he was uh, he, he joined Jeremy's staff just after the first leadership election in the autumn of uh, twenty six. Where are we? Twenty fifteen, and had been there right through all the sort of turmoil of the second leadership election. The the PLPs or some some members of the PLPs attempted ousting of Jeremy, and then the second leadership election. And by the time I uh, took up the, the job at the beginning of twenty seventeen. Um, the situation was that the Copeland by-election was coming up uh, and the Stoke central by-election and Jeremy's position as leader was still pretty tenuous even though he'd won a second mandate uh, he was still struggling the effect of the the second leadership battle particularly in the on the Labour's polling it had taken a real hammering 
um, because I mean I think generally people don't have much confidence in deeply divided parties so I don't think that was particularly a reflection on Jeremy I think it was a reflection on on how bruising and difficult that uh, that summer was but it had a it had a uh, dread if you look at the polls you know actually Labour's position in the polls was 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 improving quite well in the in the spring of that year uh, but then by the autumn after that summer um, it, it it was down to you know mid-twenties and you know that was the kind of situation that I was looking at when I was discussing taking up the job. I mean, I remember it's only two years ago now being at uh, the Welsh Labour Conference up in uh, Llandidno and speaking to people up there, quite senior people in the Labour Party who were in quite a despairing kind of mood. And I remember talking to one of them who uh, had actually worked out uh, some a strange uh, forward-thinking scenario under which uh, Labour couldn't possibly win uh, a general election before about 2034 or something like that. And, you know, there were people that I were talking to and, uh, you know, okay, these are people, generally speaking, who were on what we would now perceive to be the right of the party. And uh, they just had totally got no faith in Jeremy's ability to uh, to lead the party. They thought he got absolutely no chance of winning the election. They thought it was all going to be, be a complete and utter disaster. And in fact, um, uh, that sort of narrative does come out in your book from that sort of wing of the party because one of the themes that you've got in the early part of the book in particular is the difference in approach between the the people that you refer to as uh, Southside, who are people in Labour Party headquarters, who are the the sort of uh, the old guard, if you like, of the party, um, those who are not uh, favourably disposed towards uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And then you've got the people you refer to as Lotto, which is leader of the opposition, uh, his group, which, which you were brought in to be the deputy director of. And... That Southside mentality, which was that um, everything was going to be a complete disaster, there was going to be an appalling loss of a general election, uh, Labour was at risk of being wiped out as a political party. In fact, there was all sort of apocalyptic things being said at that time. I remember actually Jeremy uh, getting quite a, an equivocal reception when he turned up to make a speech at that uh, conference in Clendidno. The, the applause was quite muted as he came in and there were people who were quite senior people in the party who were sort of expressing embarrassment that they had to deal with him um, and yet and this is perhaps reflected in the title of your book uh, Game Changer their prognostications turned out not to be correct at all mm. what do you attribute the turnaround to? Well I, I, I come back to the sort of the latter part of that um, uh, in a minute, but I think the first thing to be said is that, that these projections were always were always wrong anyway. Um, there is no pe- people often refer back to how Labour was doing in the polls just before the 1997 election, and you know we had this sky high lead of uh, you know ten ten points in the polls. Blair, Blair was the leader and we were on about 50% or something and they see that as somehow some kind of template that if it's not like that then you're not going to win the election because the governing party usually closes the gap uh, in, in the election. Well I, I, actually if you look back over the polls which I did for writing the book um, that, that was an exceptional situation that was after the Tories had been in power for 18 years they, 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 it was a government on its knees you know, Major was at war with his own backbenches. There were corruption scandals all over the place. People were thoroughly sick and tired of the Tories. And, you know, I, I'm not saying this to score a point against Tony Blair, but I think it's just a fact that almost anybody would have won that election for Labour. Um, when Cameron came, came, uh, became Tory leader um, after the 2005 election, um, he didn't, to begin with, do very well in the polls. Um, a, a bit like Jeremy didn't do very well in the polls to begin with. Um, and he, he, he was actually triggered into a leading position by the credit squeeze and, the, and the, financial, you know, the financial crash of the banks. And it was only after that that the Tories looked like they would 
win the election, and even then they didn't actually win it outright. So there isn't a sort of... People are making projections based on what happened in a particular situation, but actually, you know, events um, can change things quite dramatically. Now, in, in, in this particular case, looking at it as we were in April, there was inevitably a, a leap, leap of faith you were expecting people to make to think that we could turn it around as much as we did. And certainly at the outset, I'm not pretending I kind of was absolutely certain we could turn it around, um, or by how much. But I was, I was confident enough to believe that we had to, we had to give it a go, um, and I didn't think we had much choice uh, in any event, because people were looking, uh, you know, looking to us to uh, tackle the issues under which they had been suffering since basically the, the recession and austerity and all the rest of it. And there were a lot of people who were expecting us to seriously challenge the Tories and, and needed us to. You know, you, you, you hear daily, I hear daily through people I know, people, disabled people being taken off benefits. You know, you hear about people's struggles with housing and young people, people we employ in London, who we pay, you know, decent money to and we're a living wage foundation employer and so on and you know I talk to them about their housing situation and in London it's desperate you know you you, you get nothing uh, for your money you 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 know have to share a pokey pokey little flat and a tiny box room or something so people actually needed us to make a go of it and so in that in the in those difficult discussions we had about how the campaign should be Run and the decisions were very practical about how much money you spend on what we what you would call offensive seats, i.e., seats held by the Tories or by the SNP that Labour had to win in order to deny the Tories a majority, versus how much you spend on defensive seats, and so that, that the argument came down to very practical questions about where you invested your money and where you invested your campaigning energy. I remember that uh, there was a time when there was a lot of disillusionment amongst Labour supporters in Wales. Uh, this was actually going back to the results of the 2015 general election. And, uh, in fact, I remember having a conversation with um, uh, Rodri Morgan uh, at the time. The party had put a lot of effort into campaigning about the bedroom tax. And, uh, obviously, Rodri was um, very interested in the situation in um, uh, Cardiff North. And... What he came to the conclusion um, was uh, when the um, Tories managed to retain Cardiff North in 2015 that the only people who were interested in issues like the bedroom tax were people who were personally affected apart from social workers and that the great mass of people didn't really have much empathy for people who were less well off than themselves. And I think Rodri was himself quite hurt about that and quite upset about that um, but he was taking a philosophical view of it mm. and yet we do see in terms of what happened in 2017 that there was a bit of a turnaround and that it was possible to get people to empathize with mm. those who are less well off than themselves is that just a manifestation of the volatility of the electorate or is there something else going on well I think what we tried to do was we tried to do both those things. We tried to uh, address the broad uh, spectrum of people uh, and how they were affected in terms of uh, by Tor what the Tories had done and by neoliberal economics, if you like, um, in terms of their living standards, in terms of, you'll notice early in the book, there was, I've got one chapter that looks at this whole question of narrative and language and how we, how, how we tell a story that people who, uh, the broad spectrum of people, a great majority of people will identify with and feel we're, addressed, we're talking to them about their lives. That was the kind of skills that you could bring to the campaign, essentially, wasn't it, from a PR perspective, I guess? I like to think so. I mean, the I think the political instincts that people who were around Jeremy had were, were were actually going in that direction anyway. But I think perhaps what I was bringing to it was an approach to communications that I, I think is based on the concept of storytelling and based on engaging people 
in uh, telling a story that they can identify with, that they feel is about them and about where they are in their lives. And one of the key things that we, it may sound like a very small thing, but as you'll know from the book, one of the key things that we identified there was we didn't want to use the term left behind because that term had been used and was associated with people who were in particular geographical areas of the country, particularly the South Wales Valleys and parts of the north of England, that had been left behind industrially with the closure of pits and steel industry and other basic industries. And it wasn't seen to be a term that applied to everybody. And I, I make the point in the in the book in, and in the discussion, this is based on the discussions we had, that you know, s- someone who, has, who lives in Isloin who can't get a job is being held back by this government, by austerity, by this, the system as it is. But equally, a young person who's living in London is being held back by not being able to, you know, not being able to get a house, perhaps being expected to work on a, an unpaid internship, uh, or, or, or whatever before they can get their career going. So left behind only speaks to the person in Isloin, but we wanted to speak to the person in in London or Isloin or the north of England. And the, this, this term held back rather than left behind uh, captured that better. And we, we used it in a lot of different bits of the publicity that we were producing and in the introduction to the manifesto. And so I think we were, what we were trying to do is, on the one hand... Uh, talk about a different kind of society that was more compassionate, where people would c- care about those most badly affected by austerity, but at the same time make people feel we were also speaking about them, even if they were better off than the homeless or someone who was disabled and had their benefit taken away or whatever. We, we were speaking to all those people about a different way of running society in the interests of the many and not the few. And of course, key to the whole project, if you like, was the status of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the party. And one of the points that comes across very strongly in the book is the way in which the Conservatives sought to project Theresa May as a national leader, uh, someone who, uh, to use that uh, awful cliche which became very disliked during the course of the campaign by many people, the strong and stable character who could keep things going, particularly at the time of Brexit, contrasting her with Jeremy Corbyn, who was portrayed as some wild man of the left who had all of these unsavoury incidents in his past where he was supposed to have pelled up with um, various characters ranging from the IRA to Hamas and simply wasn't to be trusted. And yet, as things turned out, what the campaign that you were heavily involved in running was able to do was somehow to turn the supposed demonization of Jeremy Corbyn into a positive because he was actually able to be presented as a man of principle. To what extent was that reactive to what the Conservatives were doing and to what extent was it your decision and the decision of your team to say, right, we're going to have to project Jeremy as a a positive force? Mm. I can absolutely say it was a proactive thing, um, and we would have done it anyway. The fact that she chose to make leadership and the strong and stable thing the, the big thing of the election um, was was uh, convenient in a sense for us. Although in the early stages, going back to the the point you made about the, the debate between Lotto and Southside, the Southside people were were, were arguing fiercely that we shouldn't go there we shouldn't go on onto the terrain of leadership because we would we would lose heavily but at the very beginning of the campaign in the in the outline plan that uh, I drafted and was discussed within Lotto we identified the need for us to be proactive and we had in, in fact even before we even before the election was called we were planning uh, for Jeremy to do a speech about leadership where he could set out his approach to leadership and a, diff- a different perspective on it uh, but we uh, once the election was called we decided to firm that up and put that in as a an event early in the campaign and he gave this speech about leadership and uh, part of it was to talk about his days campaigning against apartheid and it was interesting that the the media ridiculed that you, you know the daily telegraph was saying jeremy corbyn thinks he can be prime minister uh, because uh, he was once arrested for protesting against apartheid and they thought that that kind of ridicule would actually damage him but all it did was seek 
publicised the fact that he was somebody who was prepared to make a stand, even if it meant risking his own arrest, on an issue uh, about which most people would say, well, he was right and the Tory government of the day was wrong because they were collaborating with the apartheid regime. So all these attacks that developed more and more during the campaign and really intensified by the very end of the campaign in a most sort of horrendous way around you know, really exploiting, uh, you know, feelings after the two terrorist attacks in Manchester and London Bridge, um, accusing Jeremy of being soft on terrorism and so on. That was actually not just the right-wing press that was doing that, it was the BBC as well. Well, In terms of the shoot-to-kill issue. Explain that if you would, uh, Steve. Well, what what happened with that was that uh, after the London Bridge attack, uh, which was on the Saturday night before the election, the following day, uh, some content that was on the BBC website started trending. It was some old content from uh, three years earlier, two years earlier, um, where Jeremy had been interviewed uh, about Shoot to Kill. And this interview was, was somewhat misrepresented in the report on uh, at the time on BBC Six O'Clock News. And that giving the impression that Jeremy was against uh, the police being able to use lethal force in a situation where where lives are at risk in order to save lives, rather than what he thought he was talking about, or the question was, which was shoot to kill in general, which many people will, will know from over the years. It, I mean, it went to the European Court of Human Rights. And in general, shoot to kill policy is unlawful. And in general, shoot to kill policy is one where the police believing someone to be a terrorist think that they can take them out even if there's no risk to life in that situation and that is unlawful. The BBC Trust had ruled that um, uh, Laura Kunzberg, her report, had misrepresented Jeremy's views by giving the impression that he was being asked about shoot to kill in the specific circumstances of lives being at risk whereas the clip they used was he was answering a question about shoot to kill in more general terms. And so it was, it was misleading. And so the, the trust upheld a complaint against that, um, against that report. The content that was still on the BBC website on the Sunday before voting was from the same interview. And the words were reiterating the same misrepresentation. Um, and it was trending on the BBC website. And, uh, and the Sun picked up on it and publicised it. And, and the, on the Monday, the Tories actually did a tweet highlighting it, saying, you know, Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn's, you know, doesn't believe in using force when, uh, when, when lives are at risk. Um, and it was a misrepresentation. We challenged the BBC on it. We took legal advice on that weekend. Um, we, uh, we, we wrote a long letter to the BBC that Monday challenging them and asking them to take this off the website, but they wouldn't take it down. They were arguing that the trust ruling was just against the actual edited report that was on the six o'clock news and didn't apply to any of the other content that had been generated out out of that self-same interview, even though this content was repeating the exact same mistake that the trust had ruled was wrong. So, you know, it was a very, I, I, I think, a very, very bad position for the BBC to find themselves in. There was another very unpleasant incident involving Diane Abbott, wasn't there? Yes, well, that, that was arising at the same weekend. I mean, this was a point at which, in the, in the final week of the campaign, the polls had narrowed considerably. It was looking very, very close. We were, we were actually within the margin of error on most of the polls. And the, the Tories really were getting desperate. And at this point, frankly, they paid, played the race card. Uh, two things happened. One was that a, an ad van was driving around constituencies in the northwest of England, which was supposedly about Brexit, and it had Theresa May on one side and Jeremy Corbyn on the other side, and saying, you know, great Brexit if you vote Theresa kind of thing, and, and shambles if you vote for Jeremy. Except on the Jeremy side, there was a big picture of Diane Abbott as well, who's, you know, shadow Home Secretary, but got no particular frontline role in negotiating Brexit. And there was no Amber Rudd on the other side. So it was obviously just simply putting her face out there, as if to say, you know, and you'll get a black woman as, as Home Secretary. And then 
when that, that came to light, and then very soon after that coming to light, uh, there was an attack ad, a, 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 a video on Facebook that Tories were paying uh, to advertise on Facebook. And it, it was an ad based on an Andrew Marr interview with Diane Abbott uh, the previous Sunday. But they'd taken out just, I think it was 11 or 12 of Diane's words and about 50 or of Andrew Marr's words and edited it in a, in a sort of quite cunning way uh, making Diane look very uncomfortable. And the, the point uh, that they were trying to make was that uh, she, she had voted uh, allegedly against the prescribing of al-Qaeda in, in 2001, whereas actually what she had voted against was the concept of a blanket list of prescribed organisations. And if you won't go back to the debate, there were 21 organisations on this blanket list. And the Liberal Democrats had also challenged it uh, as had many other Labour MPs, Plaid Cymru had challenged it at Even the time the cons- as well. Some conservatives. Even some Conservatives had challenged it at the time. Um, but but the, the way this video came across was, here was this you know, woman who was going to be Home Secretary, you were going to get as Home Secretary. She even voted uh, to not to prescribe al-Qaeda. That's how bad she is kind of thing. And, and that's not what she was voting on. Al-Qaeda wasn't even mentioned in the debate. It was about the concept of, of this of this kind of prescription and and a list of organisations, twenty one long. You couldn't debate each of them individually. Looking now at the way in which Jeremy Corbyn was presented during the course of the campaign, uh, clearly what emerged was a big contrast between the way that. Theresa May was being portrayed by her party and the way that Jeremy uh, Corbyn uh, was was portrayed by yours. And what I was interested in was the fact that uh, you write about how, uh, in fact, Bernie Sanders was taken as something of an inspiration in terms of the way to present Jeremy, um, because Bernie Sanders came pretty close to defeating Hillary Clinton uh, for the Democrat uh, nomination in 2016. And a lot of his appeal was based on a huge number of rallies that took place uh, across the United States. And that was, to a degree, replicated by uh, Jeremy, uh, wasn't it? And I remember actually writing a piece at the time, um, towards the beginning of the election campaign last year, there was a huge contrast for me between the meeting that took place in the community centre at Bridge End, where... Theresa May was addressing uh, a group of Tory activists and it was all a bit of a nonsense because it was in a community centre but the people in the community had actually been turfed out of the community yeah, centre so that a few, day. a few cases of that. Yeah, and uh, it was all very stage-managed and uh, these people who you wouldn't imagine in a million years uh, engaging any kind of demonstration were holding up placards saying strong and stable leadership, this sort of stuff. And... It was actually stage managed to the point where only select journalists were able to ask questions, and I was privileged to be able to ask a question, and they wanted to know what I was going to ask in advance, and I told them it would be about the single market. I didn't tell them that I would be quoting from some recording, uh, secretly recorded statement that she'd made to employees of Goldman Sachs in which she was saying it would be a complete disaster if we were out of the single market, but I, but I did that. But a lot of people were very frustrated by that. And then uh, shortly afterwards, Jeremy Corbyn came to Whitchurch in Cardiff, where uh, there was an open meeting that took place on Whitchurch Common. Uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of people there. I know there were some technical issues with the uh, public address system, but nevertheless, it was, it was, a, it was a big contrast. Mm. And uh, he was being seen as somebody who was prepared to come and properly meet the people. That was very conscious, I guess, was it? Yes, definitely. I, going back to your point about leadership and, and, and how, we, how we viewed it, we felt that once the campaign got going and he was out there talking to people, he, he would be, we knew he'd be very comfortable with people. He always is. He likes to talk to people. He likes to get out. He, he prefers to travel on a train rather than be in, be, be in a car and you know, he'll mix with people wherever he is. So we knew that that would be a positive uh, and people would, would like that about him. We also uh, were mindful of the fact that the broadcasting rules for the election meant that there would be greater balance. 
So the TV channels would have to give him airtime and people would see him in a more uh, authentic uh, situation where he was actually able to sort of put his arguments across without them being uh, cunningly edited. We saw that as a major factor uh, in the election and the fact that expectations were so low, in a sense the media attacking him so much meant people's people's expectations were, were actually quite low. And then when they saw him and saw him on television or saw him out campaigning, they thought, oh, actually, you know, he's talking some sense or, you know, he seems a decent guy. You know, it, it was such a contrast to the, such an extreme contrast to the, how he'd been portrayed that it, it actually uh, exceeded expectations. Um, but in terms of the rallies, um, I, w- I was slightly concerned that we we could be in a situation where it looked like a bit of a rerun of the two leadership uh, campaigns where you know he was addressing uh, very sort of low budget in, inevitably in the leadership campaign uh, because they didn't have much money to support his campaign um, you know p- poor PA systems perhaps shouting into a a, a, a megaphone or something like that you know and I, I felt that in a general election we needed to make sure that the quality of the rallies that we were organising uh, was on a par with the, the ones that Bernie Sanders had organised in the United States one of which I'd gone along to when I was, uh, was in California and were very very uh, slickly organised great well staged big events thousands and thousands of people and there was never a, 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 never a problem hearing Bernie, wherever you were, even if you're right at the back, you were going to get, you know, exactly, you were going to hear exactly what he had to say. Um, and so we did, as the campaign proceeded, and we had more and more money coming in from our supporters, we were able to invest more and more in making these rallies bigger and better. But that one on Whitchurch Common was right, I think that was about three days after the election was called. Uh, and, and Welsh Labour, it was all done at very short notice. I'm not saying this to be critical of Welsh Labour, but they were expecting kind of 40 or 50 people and about seven or 800 turned up. So the PA system wasn't up to the job. But, you know, we, we learned from that and we made sure that ev- every event he had good, good PA. You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. One of the other significant elements of the whole campaign, of course, which I know that you had a big role in, was the um, use of social media. Tell us about that. Well, Jeremy had always, uh, well, not always, but he had had for some time uh, a very strong uh, presence on social media. And uh, that had been key to his success in winning the leadership battles because uh, he was able to kind of communicate directly with a growing army of followers. So even when the election was called, he already had over 800,000 followers on Twitter and a similar number of of people who liked his Facebook page, which was far higher than either the Tories or Theresa May. So we knew that was going to be an asset to us. Uh, and we had some very creative people involved in the campaign, in, in all parts of the campaign, really, both within Jeremy's team, also within Southside. I would like to stress, by the way, that you know the staff at Southside worked tremendously hard and were really, really talented. And although we had some early disagreements amongst the sort of hierarchy between Jeremy, uh, Jeremy's office and the Southside leadership, mm-hmm. underneath that, there was almost instantly, the election was called, a coming together uh, of everybody working very hard for the campaign. Because there had been uh, a bit of leaking going on to the right-wing press, hadn't there, from within? Yeah, and, and, and that still did happen. There were still, uh, there were still some people who uh, had a very sharp axe to grind and and carried on doing it during the campaign but they were a tiny minority um we don't really know for sure who they were um but the var- i mean among the the 200 or so people who were in labor's head office because all the lotto people all jeremy's people moved into southside uh, a week or two into the election and were, were based there so the Everybody was in one place. So the 200 or so people who were in there, I'd say, you know, 90% of them were working very enthusiastically uh, for for the campaign. So we had this creative talent across the board and also people outside, you know, our supporters outside who were doing stuff. And they were generating lots of very 
anyone who's involved in any anyone most people do go on social media i'm sure would agree that you're not going to share content unless it's you know got some humor or got some hope uh, some interesting information in it so we were generating our teams were generating some great stuff that people wanted to share but then over and above that as the campaign developed more and more um, money was coming in as I mentioned and we were able to also spend money on putting money behind our it was the same content but we were putting money behind it to reach people who perhaps wouldn't normally be in uh, in our social media circle because if you think of social media as a great sort of pond of people you know say 30 40 million people uh, I think 30 million in Britain are, are, are on Facebook something like that um, I mean Jer- Jeremy's uh, portion of that pond that where he gets his his stuff kind of ripples across uh, would would perhaps only be 10 15 20 percent of it I mean it was growing rapidly during the campaign and it was you know some of our posts were being seen by four or five million but they weren't being seen by 30 million so in order to reach say older voters who might not normally be in uh, in the circle of younger people who support Jeremy uh, we were putting some some money behind ad, you know, making sure our posts were reaching that demographic. And in fact, um, what happened was because you were getting uh, access to more people, that was generating more donations. Because of course, one of the big problems that Labour had was the fact that the kind of high-value, uh, rich business people donations that uh, the party got used to under Tony Blair um, had almost entirely evaporated. So you had to rely on smaller donors. How successful was that? Well, massively successful. I mean, no, normally the campaign budget, 12 million was spent in 2015, and normally the, the budget would be very substantially trade unions um, and then, you know, high net worth uh, donors. And we had a position where at the start of the campaign we only had about four or five million to play with. Uh, most of it carried over from the previous year, a little bit coming in from the unions, but nothing, as you say, from high net worth uh, donors. Um, most of the unions had not recovered their political funds uh, from the 2015 election. They'd not really built up much uh, in, in their funds other than Unite, who had quite a lot of money. Um, and we were getting, uh, Unite put two and a half million in and, and some of the unions put money in. Um, but we were finding on social, uh, on, online that we were, uh, and through promotion in social media, we were getting a lot of small donations, averaging about £19, £20, uh, coming in from supporters. And by the end of the campaign, we'd raised £4 million in small donations online and another million in other personal donations that came in by mail. And the high point of it came uh, in the final week before, the, the well, I suppose the penultimate week, um, beginning of June when uh, just after one of the uh, Jeremy had taken a late decision to appear in the BBC leaders debate on the Wednesday evening um, uh, the Wednesday the 31st of May and then on June the 1st um, we had planned to do an appeal to our supporters we had a very big database of supporters which grew as well it was about 2.3 million uh, who we had email uh, contact with and uh, we got uh, an appeal out from Jeremy the morning afterwards and we were getting um, donations in at a rate of a thousand pounds a minute uh, for solidly for about uh, eight hours let me get my arithmetic right sixty thousand pounds an hour solidly that's right it was we were close to five hundred thousand pounds within a normal working day Um, that's a measure of of how successful it was and this was all in you know, the average was £20. And a lot of the money was used for digital advertising, wasn't it? That's right. I mean, the first thing you do when you're planning something like this, and we, we knew that to run a really good campaign we needed about £12 million, and we were a long way at the beginning from having enough money to do it. But the first thing you've got to do is sort of secure all the basics. So, so the first tranche of money that you've got has to cover the costs of all the staff because you've recruited more people to do all the different jobs that need doing, you know, go out on the road with Jeremy and all, all that sort of thing. You need a campaign bus, that's expensive. You've got all these big events to organise, a launch of the campaign, a launch of the manifesto and so on. So you have to secure, you have to have the money in place to cover all those basic uh, costs, which 
ended up being sort of five or six million. Then there was a sort of direct mail campaign, which there's some debate about, I think, the effectiveness of direct mail now and relative to cost. Um, and we, we lacked, to begin with, enough money to, to do the social media, to do the, the paid-for element of social media, the advertising element of social media. But because of this hugely successful uh, fundraising online, by the end of the campaign, we were, you know, we had plenty, and we were able to really invest in a big way in the last ten days. To what extent were you able to target particular sections of the community in order to get your message across? And obviously, I'm asking that question in the context of the controversy that's going on at the moment about Cambridge Analytica, because clearly it's thought that they may well have overstepped the mark and broken the law. How was your social media campaign underpinned by integrity well i think i think it was uh, completely underpinned by integrity in the sense that um we were working within we, we were working within the normal le- legal framework of uh data what you would call data-led marketing i mean most marketing these days most online marketing uh is 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 what they call data-led so you are targeting particular demographics who who you know from uh, you know their their activity online uh, are likely to be interested in whatever you're trying to sell if it's a product you're trying to sell so if you go any anyone can do this anyone can go on Facebook and say I want to promote my post on Facebook and you can go on and you can pay 50 quid and it'll It'll ask you, it doesn't even have to be 50 quid, it can be 10 quid, and it'll ask you, who, who do you want this post to be seen by? And uh, I don't know if you, have you ever done this? No. No, you, you can go on there, you can do it. I did it, I did it for the novel I wrote a couple of years ago, just to, you know, spending my own money promoting, uh, trying to get people interested in reading my book. And so you go on and you're asked, it takes you through a series of, questions to set set the thing up to boost what they call boost a post and uh, it'll it'll say to you right uh, geographically where where wh- what are you targeting and a little map will come up and you okay cardiff do you want uh, everybody within a six mile radius of cardiff so you tick that box then it'll say uh, age so you'll pick an age range you want it'll be men or women or both uh, and then it'll and then it'll offer you some some interest interested in the book was a thriller interested in thriller tick it was a thriller set in a sports context, so you get a second category you can match it with. So I, I picked sport, and and so you and and it'll tell you as you're putting in these different criteria, it'll tell you what the pool is for those people in Cardiff. You know how many people are there who are between the ages of twenty, just for argument's sake, between the ages of twenty and sixty. Uh, Women, because women tend to read books more than men, uh, who who are interested in reading thrillers or crime stories, and who are uh, interested in in sport, and it'll tell you what the pool of people on Facebook is for that, and it'll be say twenty thousand. And what will happen then is your post will be pushed in front of those people on Facebook. Now they don't have to they don't have to look at it, they don't have to read it. But as an advertiser, it will then tell you how many people click on it and go through the link to whatever it is you're wanting to get them, get them to read. Uh, and, and that's what and you were doing. Uh, uh, well, that's what I mean. That's what anyone can do to advertise anything on Facebook, um, and and basically that's what we were doing uh, for for Jeremy's campaign. The, the 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 only added bit to it was that we had electoral register information as well, and so within the uh, within the Southside elections data team, they were matching up constituencies we were targeting, data from Electoral Register and Facebook demographics. Now, don't ask me, I'm not a data person, exactly how they did that, but that's all kind of publicly, I mean, Electoral Registers are publicly available, and uh, it, Facebook wasn't divulging to us any demographic information. We were taking the normal information that was available to any advertiser 
um, and, and matching it to the uh, to the electoral register and the constituencies. Because the strange thing is, I remember back in 2015 having a conversation on the night of the general election count when the Conservatives retained Cardiff North with Jonathan Evans, who was the former MP. And he at the time uh, was saying how uh, in their campaign they'd been very successful in using Facebook and what they'd done is they'd managed to get hold of information relating to people who lived very close by uh, well-respected Tories in the community who were then uh, cascading these messages out to these people and they were finding that that was very successful. So how is it that it appears that the Tories were able to use Facebook and presumably other social media in uh, 2015 successfully, but in 2017 it all turned around and we know that Labour was much more successful. Well, you say that, but maybe the Tories would have done even worse if they hadn't spent so much money in 2017 on social media. And particularly if you take the Diane Abbott uh, attack advert uh, misrepresenting the position about Al-Qaeda... Who knows what effect that might have had in some borderline constituencies in terms of suppressing the Labour vote. People might, I don't think attack adverts like that necessarily enhance the Tory vote, it might help get out the vote a bit, but those kind of adverts are often more aimed at suppressing the Labour vote and putting putting people off voting Labour even if they wouldn't go in the Tory, uh, tick the Tory box. So, you know, in terms of measuring how effective they were, You've got to ask yourselves, would they have done worse if they um, had spent less? And I I think they would. I think their attack adverts probably did have a borderline effect, you know, maybe two or three percentage points, uh, which could have been the difference between us being the largest party rather than them. One of the strange things is, uh, in the book, your narrative shows how the polls narrowed during the course of the campaign. Uh, to a point where, as you say, it was within the margin of error. I had a briefing from uh, two sets of um, senior Welsh Labour people on the day before the election about what the party's prospects were perceived to be in Wales. And I was told very firmly, there's no chance of us gaining any seats, and what we're doing is bolstering up our campaign Uh, from a defensive point of view, to make sure that the Tories don't win any more seats from us. And yet, if they looked at the polls, they would have seen that um, uh, there had been that narrowing. But it seemed that these people, uh, who were professionals, did not seem to have uh, got what was going on. Does that tell you with your experience? Well, well, I I must say, I'm very disappointed. Did you say that was on the day before? The day before polling day. Well, I'm very disappointed to hear that as late as that, I mean, that's staggering, frankly, that as late as that, uh, there were still people, anybody in the Labour Party, who were still talking in those kind of terms and thinking that uh, we were going to do badly because... um, you know, there was so much evidence, as you say, from the polls at that stage. I mean, okay, uh, some polls were still putting us, uh, you know, fairly large percentages behind the Tories, but there were enough polls that were showing us quite close. For Even if you took the midpoint between the two, you would say, well, actually, we're going to do a lot better than we did in 2015 in terms of a share of the vote. Um, so I, I can understand people at the outset of the campaign feeling a bit doom-laden about everything because it had been two terrible years for the Labour Party. Wh- whichever side of the, the battle you were on between... I was a, voted for Jeremy Corbyn both times, but even if you didn't, uh, even if you did vote for Jeremy Corbyn, you, you, would be, you would have to temper your optimism with you know, a recognition that there was a hell of a, hell of a mountain to climb. So I, I can understand why, you know, there was that argument about defensive and offensive seats at the very beginning of the campaign. What I find less acceptable is is the fact that, you know, so clearly by particularly by the time the um, our manifesto had been published, and then two days later the Tory manifesto has been been published, and all the all the dementia tax stuff. By then we'd seen two clear surges in the polls. Um, 
if you look at the pattern of them, one at the very beginning, there'd been a, a definite movement upwards in our favour, then it had levelled off, and then there was this second surge. So already uh, by the, third, the end of the third week of May, we were seeing uh, people were talking about the Corbyn surge and so on. So I think by that stage and after that, I can't see any justification for, 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 for pessimism. And I was very surprised when, and I tell this story in the book, uh, I came down for um, uh, Roger's funeral and I was representing myself and I was also representing Jeremy at, at, the, at the funeral. And I knew Roger quite well and respected him hugely. I, th- I thought he was a lovely, a great person and, uh, and, a, and a very good and capable politician and first minister. And it was a very moving, um, very moving funeral. Um, and But afterwards, um, there was... Uh, tea and biscuits for people who'd attended and I um, was chatting to Jenny Jenny Rathbone and um, Anna McMorran, Anna McMorran being the candidate for Cardiff North and I was staggered to find that uh, Anna didn't have any staff support. Um, she had taken time off worked to run the campaign, her agent wasn't full time and she had no, no staff support. Now that to me was a prime target seat and you know, she should have had uh, staff in there helping her organise that campaign. Uh, obviously, she had volunteers, but you need, you know, in a seat like that, you would expect to, there to be staff uh, helping her. And so I, I, I went, when I went back to London straight after the funeral, I saw Ian McNichol, the General Secretary of the party, straight away and said, look, you know, we've got to get staff into Cardiff North speak to you know speak to the people in Cardiff about it and let's get some staff in there now to be fair he acted on it straight away um, but that was very late so some staff were put in I'm, I can't remember I think it was just a couple of people but you know better late than never but I'm really surprised people would still be talking those terms uh, at that stage do you think um, that people like that were perhaps so entrenched in their views that uh, Jeremy Corbyn was expected to go down very heavily to a defeat that they found it very difficult psychologically if you like to come to terms with the fact that he might actually uh, be in with a chance of winning I I think some people uh, were hoping that he would the election would uh, be a case of damage limitation and then Jeremy would have to resign and there would be a, a new leader elected. And we do know that there, was, um, there were moves afoot to prepare for a leadership election uh, uh, around uh, Yvette Cooper. Now, um, I like to think that most people in the Labour Party would set those things aside, that that was only a relatively small number of people that actually uh, almost would be happy for us to do badly because it would mean that Corbyn could go. I think the vast majority of Labour members and Labour supporters, whether they voted for Jeremy or not, always want the party to do well in an election. But there was a further complication in the, in the calculations, which is, which is the arithmetic of the collapse in the UKIP vote. And what that meant was that even if the Labour vote went up substantially... Uh, for example, in 2015, it was 30.4% our share of the vote. So say the Labour vote went up to 35 or 36%, which would be a great improvement. Most parties would be pleased with that. It was still possible, even on 35 or 36%, that we would lose some seats because of the UKIP vote collapsing and that transferring mostly to the Tories in some key Labour seats. And so there was this scenario where you know we might lose seats even if we substantially increased our share of the vote. Now, as it turned out, of course, as, as we know, um, we increased it by more than that to 40%, and that meant that we gained a net of 30 seats. Um, but I think some people giving these kind of pessimistic briefings, some of them may have been hoping that it would be an opportunity to get rid of Jeremy. Others of them uh, perhaps understood that arithmetic and were, were perhaps managing your expectations a bit so that, uh, you know, because they knew how difficult it would be for us to gain seats. We really did have to increase our vote by a lot to gain seats. What I can say is that a friend of mine is a Blairite and he is never short of uh, observations to make about political trends. And yet, on the uh, day when the election results came out, 
uh, I asked him for his analysis of what had happened and he was completely unable to say anything to me. He was completely thrown by what had happened and it just occurs to me that there must have been quite a few people like that and then I was thinking also of those who had briefed me um, so close to the election taking place when, as you say, there was clear polling evidence that things were going to be a lot closer than uh, uh, than had been thought at the start of the election. Uh, and I mean, just sort of thinking back uh, to the start of the election campaign, when there was that poll which suggested that the Tories were significantly ahead in Wales and were going to win a majority of the seats. That I, they I remember it well, 50%. yeah. <laughs> Yet during the course of the campaign, that changed very radically. Um, and that, in a sense in itself, defied all conventional wisdom about the way that election campaigns go because I think you mentioned in the course of the book that the uh, the conventional wisdom is that things only move by two to three percent mm. during the course of an election campaign and yet things went much more than that. What, what do you think this is all about Steve? Well I think the underlying thing is what happened in 2008 and the effect it had on society. You know that was a, 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 a seismic event, the bank crash, the recession, uh, the, the number of people who lost jobs, a couple of hundred thousand people in a, just a few short years lost their, couple of hundred thousand families lost their homes, businesses went to the wall, um, tuition fees were trebled, uh, a whole number of things, you know, public sector pay freeze, and then alongside that you saw all these tax cuts being made for, uh, on, you know, the profits of big companies, uh, capital gains tax, all the scandals about tax haven tax havens and the growing sense in society that something was deeply unfair about this uh, and people were angry about it but no outlet for that anger and if you look at the 2015 uh, general election what happened in 2015 was uh, extraordinary really the three big established parties the Liberal Democrats the Tories and Labour uh, got a minority of the electorate supporting them. People either didn't, either didn't vote or they voted for, th- for, 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 I was going to say third parties, but they voted for other parties, you know, uh, SNP, Plaid Cymru, the Greens and UKIP. And uh, it hadn't happened ever that they, those, the, the major established Westminster parties didn't even, couldn't get a, between them a majority of the electorate. And this is telling you something about people, about politics fragmenting and people looking for answers and going in lots of different directions looking for answers. And it might be misplaced as far as I'm concerned. Obviously, people voting for UKIP because they they blame the EU and they they think that's globalisation's been the cause. Well, rightly, I think globalisation's been the cause of many industries going to the wall. Um, So, you know, all that... It didn't take a, a genius to see that politics was, was changing and politics was becoming much more fragmented. Now, that came to a head in 2016 with the referendum, where the country revolted against the recommendation of all the major political parties, um, not just the three main ones, but actually even, you know, SNP and Plaid Cymru. And, um, uh, and that was a real... You'd, well, you'd think that was a wake-up call to, to the sort of Westminster insiders, but actually the Westminster insiders kind of carried on as if it... Many of them carried on as if it hadn't happened. But, of course, Jeremy Corbyn was much more in tune with that mood than anyone ever gave him credit for. Um, and, you know, when he, he and other people... This is not just a one-man band, but, it, you know, when, when the, the party went out there with that very positive message that... Austerity is a political choice. It doesn't have to be like this. There is a better way of doing things. People responded. And I think also you make the point in the book that um, the Conservatives had the expectation that the election would be framed by people's attitude towards Brexit. Mm. And that actually didn't turn out to be the case at all, did it? Or or not nearly as much as they expected. No, exactly. I mean, there are two fault lines, I think I say in the book, in British politics at the moment. One is austerity and the other is Brexit. And I think a lot of people felt that Brexit was settled. They'd voted on that the previous year, and as far as they were concerned, that is what they were expecting the government to do. And, and Theresa May, in calling the election, if you, if you, if you 
look at what she said on the day she called the election. She wanted to frame it very much around Brexit. She wanted it to be about giving her a, a bigger mandate so it would strengthen her negotiating position in Brussels and to stop the sabotage or the obstruction of Brexit by by the opposition parties. And she was trying to paint us in the corner of being, you know, the saboteurs of Brexit kind of thing. Um, we, the Labour Party, adopted a position of accepting the result of the referendum, had already done that and voted for the triggering of Article 50. It was pretty painful. Quite a lot of our MPs uh, revolted against it, or a proportion of them did. But it was a, a decision we had to take. You know, if you say you're going to uh, have a referendum and give people that choice, you have, to, you have to respect the choice that they made. And we were able to reframe that as, as being about what kind of Brexit uh, do you want? What kind of country do you want Britain to be post-Brexit? Uh, both in terms of its relationship with the EU, but also the way in which the country itself is run, because a lot of the Tories like Liam Fox and uh, Rhys Mogg and Johnson, for example, would do away with all this, what they consider to be horrible EU regulations that protect employment rights and protect consumer rights and protect the environment. So we were very clearly saying we want to have a good trading relationship with the EU because we need it to protect jobs and at the same time uh, we, we want the economic model of Britain to be one where workers' rights are protected and where there are high consumer standards and high environmental standards. So, so we were able to shift the debate about Brexit itself but also then of course uh, that linked very closely with the debate about austerity uh, which is also about the kind of country you want Britain to be. So the two things could could work together in that in that sense. And I think the austerity thing really did strike a chord with people who were very very weary of being told they had to accept all this pain in order to bring down the deficit when tax cuts could be handed out in their tens of billions. Going beyond what you write about in the book, uh, Steve, looking to the future. How do you see things panning out for Labour now? Um, presumably you would have been very encouraged by the result last year. Uh, Labour didn't win, but it deprived the Tories of their overall majority. And um, obviously Jeremy Corbyn is much more secure in his position now than he was before. The people who opposed him seem very largely to have piped down. And yet at the moment we've... Uh, had this um, stuff about the attempted murder of the uh, Russians in Salisbury where uh, the Conservatives have uh, tried to make perhaps some political capital out of that uh, and uh, opinion polls have said that uh, most people uh, agree, although there are a lot of don't knows of those who express a view, there are more people, significantly more people who agree with Theresa May on this than with Jeremy. Um, do you think this is just a blip, or do you think that um, the tide of history is in Jeremy's favour and that it will be possible to win the next general election whenever that happens? I think it will be possible to win the next general election for, for several reasons. One is the um, the Brexit factor, although I think uh, it didn't become the Brexit election that Theresa May wanted. It was to some extent complicated by by Brexit, and there's no doubt that in large parts of the country, more of the UKIP vote was going to the Tories than was coming coming back to us. And so there are, you know, in these Brexit voting areas, there were a proportion of people who were prepared to vote Tory on the Brexit issue, who I think, uh, in the normal course of things, would come back uh, to Labour, because what our polling was showing was a, a sort of contradiction that people had confidence in, in in May about Brexit but didn't have any confidence in her, didn't trust her on the NHS, didn't trust her on employment rights and a whole host of other things. So I think I think in that situation it will be possible for us to win back that group of people. Uh, and I think also that the uh, time will tell on the on the on this Russia question. Uh, we'll see how it, it pans out. But I think there's a lot of people 
There are a lot of people out there who accept uh, the idea that the leader of opposition has to be sceptical, has to ask questions, and that there have, been, there have been a lot of situations where we've been misled about these things, and we, uh, we, we need to keep our critical faculties. So I think, I think that argument will, will move more in, uh, in Jeremy's direction. You went to work for him last year. Um, you didn't know him at all, I don't think, did you? You hadn't, I hadn't met I, him. I hadn't actually met him. No. no. What were your impressions of him? Um, he's very uh, easygoing, uh, very very down to earth. He doesn't have any airs and graces. He'll walk round the office with uh, with dates from his favourite uh, deli in in Islington, offering North African dried dates to you. That seems to be. <laughs> One of his favourite things. Um, he uh, is a very easygoing guy and nice to work with. You know. Can you see him as a prime minister? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I can. And because I think this caricature of of, of a prime minister as someone who has to be uh, of, of a particular type. If you actually look back over people who've been prime ministers over over the years. They've actually all been very different from each other. I mean, Attlee was a sort of diminutive figure, not particularly charismatic, not a great speaker, and yet he's considered to have been a, a good prime minister. Very different from Churchill. Harold, Harold Wilson was, was often ridiculed, and yet actually, I mean, everyone says that Tony Blair was the most successful prime minister in Labour history, but actually uh, Harold Wilson won four elections, um, won more than Blair. Um, so I don't think there is a set formula of what somebody uh, should be like. Um, we, you know, he, he will be prime minister, and 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 I believe, and people will accept that that's what a prime minister is like. And why why not? Are you expecting the call again? I could have stayed on. You know, I could have stayed on indefinitely, and uh, you know, in many ways, I would have I would have wanted to, but. Uh, the reality of the situation was that, you know, I live in Cardiff, um, my wife works here, you know, my business is here, and I was on an indefinite leave of absence from that. And commuting between Cardiff and London was, at my age, um, you know, quite demanding and draining. So I felt that once the election was over, I felt I'd, I'd made the contribution I could make. Um, and, and I've said to them, you know, if I can help in any other ways in the future, I'm ha- happy to do so. And I think, you know, I might, that might include some kind of paid role in the future. It might not. I, I'm not particularly looking for that. I think I can, um, I can contribute in other ways. Hopefully the book will contribute. <laughs> okay, Steve. Uh, you're the author of uh, Game Changer, which is uh, just in the process of being released and uh, as I said at the beginning I found it a very good read um, it's very insightful into the Jeremy Corbyn campaign for the um, general election of 2017 and I would thoroughly recommend it to all listeners so Steve Howell thank you very much indeed thank you very much thanks for listening to my podcast Martin Shipton Meets we'll be back for more next week